The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, a big welcome, especially anybody who's here for the first time online or here in the room. And uh, just a reminder that we also have a Sunday evening program, but that's just in person, 7 to 8.30, Sundays here in Minneapolis at the city center. And Shelley Graff, the other co-guiding teacher, has their group, both hybrid, or uh, both online and in person on Wednesday evening, 7.30 to 9. So those three are our three weekly practice groups. And I've been giving since uh, June a series of talks on, I mean, it started with what do we mean by the mind? But it's more a series of talks on the liberating aspect of awareness. Like, what is it about awareness? What do we mean by awareness? And what is it about awareness that is liberating? And there's nothing else going on in the building, so how about in the room we keep those two doors open? That would just help with the ventilation. Thanks. And last week, um, and in the guided meditation today, I talked about like one way to get to know the mind and to get to know awareness is to use a meditation object or an anchor. And it's a particular training, and it's just one way to do our meditation. But it's a really important skill to play with, and by that I mean like for decades, with that skill, like to develop that skill. How can I take attention and ask attention, that particular capacity of our mind to pay attention, to pay attention to something, you know, most of our meditation anchors are pretty neutral, ordinary things, like walking, like washing dishes. And then when we're sitting, it would be something like feeling the breath coming in. It's different than breath control or pranayama, the yogic breathing practices, right? It's just the ordinary breath, feeling the sensations of that ordinary breath happening in the body, feeling the ordinary sensations of breathing out happening in the body, or feeling the body sitting, or aware of hearing. And there are other meditation you know, related objects like doing a body scan is a very common one where we just move the attention in a systematic way. You know, you can start at the bottom or you can start at the top and you move down and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. So instead of whole body awareness, it's part by part in a systematic way. And well, the first thing we discover is the mind doesn't like to be told what to do. It has its own ideas, right? They are, they are our habits to think about this and fantasize about that and compare and plan and, you know, all the things the thinking mind, conceiving mind does all day long for decades. Those habits are pretty deep. And then when we ask the mind, no, no, honey, please just return, just be with this, there's going to be some pushback. And it isn't about, um, demanding or using willful effort. It's really about uncovering this specific capacity we have to be interested, to remember to be interested 
in this ordinary thing of breathing in and breathing out. And the thing is, it's easier for the mind to resort to that willfulness. You know how it is. You get you read a great book on parenting. Some of you have raised kids, or on you know having a dog or having a cat. Really wonderfully wise book on whatever parenting or having a pet. But and you're great for the first few rounds. Then the third time, the cat or the child or the whatever doesn't do what you want, then we resort to, well, I'm bigger than you. And you're going to do what I want. Or I'm not going to feed you, or, you know, I'm not going to like you, or I'm going to withhold my love. Yeah, that's... I think it's okay. I think can leave it off. Yeah, so when we, we notice that the mind resorting to those old habits of I'm bigger than you, and, you know, basically using greed and hatred and delusion, some combination of those three animating, I mean, not just they're the, the animating forces in our heart, but they're also the animating forces in our society, greed, hatred, and delusion. It's kind of what makes stuff happen. But then we feel like the way we feel, and our society looks the way that it looks, because not completely, entirely, but mostly animated by greed, greediness, hatefulness, and deludedness. And that's that, you know, one of the manifestations of that is that uh, sense that I should be able to, with my willpower, I should be able to make stuff happen the way I want them to happen. And if it doesn't, then I'm bad or I'm a failure or somebody is out to get me and to keep me from having what I want or getting what I want. We demonize ourselves or we demonize the world. We de- you know, we turn things into good versus evil. And when we look at our literature or storytelling, there's just so much of it is in, in this sort of simplistic way of good versus evil. And our practice is not somehow telling herself that that's the wrong story, good versus evil, but more about, let me take a closer look, right? It's that kind of innocence and interest and um, curiosity, openness. But we can't be open or curious until we break the spell because we're very much caught in this view that we have of either being controlling or giving up. And that's even like if you find yourself just spinning in a meditation time or in daily life, one way to bring some clarity to the moment is just to ask yourself, is what's going on in the mind, is that mostly, is it some version of giving up, wanting to hide under a rock, wanting to be done with it all? Or is it some version of wanting to control, wanting to fix, wanting to put things in the right places, people in the right places, bend things to my will. You know, what's really going on? Because I'm sensing that I'm struggling. I'm sensing some kind of friction, some sort of torment, 
some kind of agitation or heaviness. So what's going on? And and again, we're not replacing, like let's say we notice that the mind's being controlling, or we notice the mind is identified with giving up, being a victim, this is too much, I can't. So whatever we notice, right, it isn't about doing the opposite, it's about getting interested. Well, let me get interested. Let me get interested so how I relate, how I show up in the moment will come out of having taken a closer look or a deeper feel about what's going on here. And this is where that exclusive meditation object comes in because it's not always, we're not always able to open to the totality of the present moment. Have you noticed, like even in the instructions I gave at the beginning, you know, just like, can you feel what's here to feel? Sometimes the answer to that really kind, seemingly kind, wise question is no. I, well, maybe I can, but I do not want to feel what I'm feeling. I just don't want to be here. I'd much rather think about Buddhism or think mm-hmm. about meditation than actually do it. This is chronic in Buddhist meditation circles. Oh, we got 30 minutes to think about meditation. <laughs> think about being a Buddhist. Think about being present. Think about the breath. Have you caught yourself? Because this is very common. It's actually a sign of your practice getting clearer when you notice that what your mind was doing was watching a mental image of breathing. It's like the production studio of our mind created a little documentary on breathing, and that's what the attention is attending to. That little, it's, you know, in psychological terms, the mind is conceiving, right, conceptualizing the activity of breathing. And then attention, awareness, is knowing that except there's delusion because the awareness isn't aware that that's just mental activity being known. It thinks it's the breath being known, but it's the thought about the breath or the mental image of the breath being known. So that's where the exclusive uh, meditation objects, and I mentioned last week that we're really doing our work, our training over years to befriend our meditation objects. They literally become a friend, a refuge, a go-to place. When the mind doesn't know what to do, then it's nice to go to the meditation object for a moment or a few moments because it removes doubt from the mind. Like, when I'm, when any of us, when we're in that place of trying to figure out what's going on, and, you know, we're sort of chasing our tail because we can't figure it out because we're in the bubble of, I need to figure out what's going on. But that bubble of, I need to figure out what's going on, is disconnected from the present moment. It's that bubble of a frightened guy who needs to figure out what's going on who feels vulnerable or feels insecure in some way. So if I, if the new habit has been developed to 
just feel the body or just feel the next breath coming in and going out or just connect to hearing, all of a sudden, one, that bubble of being in that vortex of, I need to figure out what's going on, that gets popped. Because now the mind isn't attending to that, it's attending to the anchor, feeling the breath, being with the breath, or whatever it might be. And in that experience, and you can just, whatever, some simple experience of touch, some simple experience of hearing, not the idea of it, but right now the experiencing of it, when we're intimate with something ordinary, there's no doubt in the mind. Right? The mind has to be identified with its conceiving to be uneasy with doubt. We have to be identified with the meaning our thoughts are constructing to have the experience of doubt and anxiety. There's no doubt and anxiety when we're connecting to ordinary experience. It doesn't mean that we've resolved all that's unresolved in our lives. It just means that we're touching for a moment or some moments a kind of balance. The mind is temporarily empty of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's why Thich Nhat Hanh, his book he wrote way back when it might have been his first book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, you know, when he started teaching here in the West, way back, I don't know when that was, but maybe uh, early 70s, something like that, when that book was written. That's why he, I think, chose that title. It's kind of provocative, you know, it, it's almost enough to make us want to roll our eyes. What is, what is the miracle of being mindfully aware? Because a lot, like I mentioned, in terms of our opening moments of the sit, when we're when we invite ourselves to simply connect, the first, often the first reaction is, I don't really want to be here. I really don't want to connect. i rather find an interesting bubble to absorb into, including my fantasy of being a Buddhist meditation person. You know, it's just like, that, hey, that's an identity I can get behind. You know, and then we... It's like, uh, remember back in the day, you know, I had four sisters and I think there were even paper dolls for guys or boys back then. But anyway, you know, it's just, it's just like we're putting different clothes on these things that are so abstract. I mean, they're not two-dimensional. I don't know if you remember that, these flat little cardboard things and you paste different things on, you put a watch on the wrist and... What's that? Yeah. But the, but the thing is, that sort of being in our world of ideas, it has some semblance of reality, but it's not reality. It's just our ideas about stuff. But we, there's a semblance, apparent semblance of control in the world of our conceptions. But it's, just to be blunt, it's dead. Right? Because it depends on being disconnected from reality. We're in our, and so in that world of our conceptions, the mind 
feels desperate for something real, that all they can think to do is to decorate in a slightly different way the paper dolls of our mind over and over again. Well, let's try this. You know, let's put it, do it in a funny way or more elegant way or a And then we just, you know, want to reject it. But we always go to more of the same. So this deciding, even though a lot of our instincts will want to doubt it or dismiss it, and initially, even if we have to do it on borrowed faith, I strongly recommend that you take up a few of these trainings and turn them in to really good friends so that you have the skill, you have some uh, new habit, basically, where you can connect with your breath, you can connect with the body, you can connect with hearing, you can connect with seeing. That's different than looking. You're just aware that seeing, the visual field, is just seeing that it's an actual experience independent of what our perceptual process says we're seeing. I'm not saying you don't want to perceive or recognize what you're seeing, you know, or look at this or look at that. I'm just saying that the capacity to know that seeing is just seeing and hearing is just hearing and feeling the breath coming in is just that, those sensations of the breath coming in the sensation. See, it, it causes the mind to drop its identification with whatever drama or conception that it might be constructing. And then the mind feels, senses that freedom from the entangling, agitating, stressful identification with conception. And that pleasure is really important. It's like we're not a wise human being. We can't actually be wise and kind when we're lost in thought. Because wisdom and real kindness or real compassion depend on being connected in this more holistic, grounded, inclusive sense. Which means we can't be confused by the thoughts that are arising. It's not that we have to stop the thoughts, but we have to stop being confused that thoughts are more than what they are. Because if we're confused by thoughts, then the attention and the identification with the thoughts cause that separation, that disconnection. And then we're operating uh, with a view that isn't wise, it isn't kind. It's because it's based on disconnection. It's based on what in Buddhism we call wrong view or self-view. Remember, self is just an idea, a deluding idea, a very pervasive, deluding idea, the separate sense of self. And so when we're operating, now this kind of makes it clear, because we're operating there almost all the time to some degree. So that's when we're not operating there. It is a bit of a miracle. So the 
the key is to have these skillful means, and they're just techniques, to break the spell of the predominant habit of being lost in thought. And then we develop it formally in our meditation time. If we're lucky, we can do that every day. Put in our 10 minutes, put in our 20 minutes, put in our 40 minutes, put in our 60 minutes, whatever you have. Maybe some of you can do it twice a day where you're doing your formal training. And a large part of that formal training for most of us will be working with a meditation object. We're really working with the present moment as it actually is, but the meditation objects are just a more simple simple version of the present moment because that touching as the air goes in the nostrils with the in-breath or the touching as the air goes out, that happens in the present moment. That is a present moment happening. And when the mind is aware of that touching, then like I mentioned in the guided set with practice, we're not sticking with the exclusive attention with the touching at the nostrils or the feeling of the belly rising and falling or however you like, whatever is an easy way to feel the physicality of breathing in and breathing out. You want to, once you get, develop the skill to connect and sustain with your anchor, it isn't long before we want to realize that even with this exclusive attention to the anchor, the present moment, the totality of the present moment is here. Like even right now, you're listening to me speak, probably to some degree, but can't can't you also, can't we also be aware that seeing is being seen and hearing is being heard, sensations are being felt, any emotional, attitudinal qualities in the mind are being known. Right, so we can know that we're comprehending the words that I'm speaking and be aware to some degree of the totality that the present moment is always inclusive. And so when we're not sensing the inclusiveness of the present moment, then some delusion is operating. So even when we're needing the more exclusive attention to the meditation object, which we do, like that's the initial part of the training, there's some stressfulness in not letting the awareness notice everything else that's here and now. No, no, just know this. Because that more exclusive attention has a specific point to break the spell of the conceptions of the mind, what the mind is thinking and conceiving. Right. So we need to, no, no, just know this one thing. And the one thing can be relatively broad or can be relatively narrow, that it's the exclusiveness, the specific characteristics of that phenomena, like the touching, or the particular quality of the touching as the air goes in and out of the nostrils, or the particular quality of that movement as the belly rises and falls, or the particular, you know, quality of hearing that the movement and the ephemeral nature, like sound is so interesting. 
you know, it's like a river. Have you noticed? Like hearing is a river, but when we're caught or more identified with the perceptions of what we're hearing, we forget that hearing is much more like a river. It's almost like a river of sensation. Just like seeing is even, even less, we don't think of seeing as a touching, but in a way the visual form, you know, it's an impingement on the sensitivity to seeing. And so these anchors and using the use of an anchor it really corrects wrong view in the mind. It establishes a kind of humility immediately when we go to the breath, we go to the whole body, we go to hearing, we go to seeing. Seeing is generally for most people a more complicated meditation anchor because for us humans, seeing is very much connected with conceiving. Right? So hey, you probably notice like it's easier to be with hearing in that sort of simple way than it is to be with seeing. It's hard to relax into seeing without that. It's like it's the, the experience is still dominated by the perceptions of what we're seeing. Right? The mind is turning what is just seeing, you know, the visual, the color, shape, to objects. But those objects isn't seen. That's the perception, that kind of mental conceiving. With a mental, the cognitive process turns sound or sight or touch or whatever into kind of discrete, oh, that's that. That's that. And I like that or I don't like that. And again, we don't want to pathologize that. Or Obviously, that's a necessary, useful way, but we're trying to develop, trying to uncover this thread, a different kind of pleasure that we can then learn to keep in mind actually all day long. And it's not the pleasure that we get from getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. There is a pleasure in that whole world of sensuality you know, having pleasant sense experiences and getting rid of the unpleasant. But what we want to keep in mind is, we want to uncover and keep in mind is this other kind of pleasure. And it starts with what I mentioned last week, the pleasure of seclusion, and then it develops into a deeper, it's really the continuation of that same pleasure, the pleasure of dispassion, the pleasure of emptiness, the pleasure of release. And this is that taste of freedom, the taste of release. And the whole path, even in the beginning, even in our frustrating early years of meditation or awareness practice, we don't really know what we're doing until we start to have a sense, our own direct experiential sense of the pleasure, that freedom of release the taste of freedom. And so when we sit and we're using our meditation object like being with the breath, and we get a little continuity, which is just that not forgetting to be interested in that physicality of breathing in and breathing out, and so attentive, so relaxed and open and curious and attentive, that the mind doesn't have any bandwidth to do anything else. 
because it's doing this wholeheartedly, right? And then right then in that experience will be the beginnings of that pleasure that's of seclusion. And it's an unconditioned pleasure, meaning we can find that pleasure in any moment. As soon as my mind isn't dissipating and uh, being fragmented and agitated by my thoughts about the moment, then there's the beginning of that joy, that inner joy of seclusion. Somebody, I forget who it was, said that joy is this, minus our thoughts about this. Right? Because it's our, it's not the thoughts about this moment that are the problem, but the mind's habit to identify, in a sense to be imprisoned by my thoughts about this moment, that separates the heart from Because the joy, that inner joy, the unconditioned happiness, isn't about what we get or find, it's about what the mind isn't doing. So when the mind isn't caught in thought, has a little continuity of present moment awareness, then it feels, to some degree, what the mind feels like when it's not identified and being pushed around by our thoughts about things. And we want to be able to find it all day long. We'll lose it all day long. You know, we'll get caught up in some conversation or interaction or mental obsession. But then we'll notice the tension of that, the feeling of being disconnected from the pleasure of seclusion will wake the mind up. Basically says, this doesn't feel right. So, the idea isn't to stay with the exclusive, but to move to a more inclusive awareness. But we have to kind of find something that will help us trust that inclusive awareness of the present moment. And, you know, interestingly, there is this place, I, I meant to mention in the guided meditation, where when we're with the, the exclusive object, and there's kind of a narrowing of the mind. It's just like the mind is just knowing this one thing. And there's this kind of delicate place in practice where you'll feel the edginess of sleepiness and dullness and kind of a collapse of the mind because the, it's, it's sort of a refined, you know, when you're bringing attention to one thing, and the thing that you're bringing attention to is really ordinary, like being with the breath, or being with the body, or being with hearing, there's kind of a refinement in the attention. And then to sort of keep the mind in balance, we have to be interested. And that's what really strengthens the practice, is it's a new skill, how to be interested, actually interested in something simple interested enough to keep it in mind, interested enough to not forget. And we'll find this kind of collapsing, I mean, not this is not necessarily what happened with Patrice, but uh, but this happens in practice where you could feel kind of inner set, kind of really alert, balanced, that all of a sudden, in just a moment, it's like the whole tranquility kicks in and the mind just falls asleep. 
And you're literally, the, what wakes you up is that you're falling forward, whether you're in a chair or on the cushion or whatever, however you might be sitting. And then just know if you're in that sort of nodding place, it's like, oh, the quality of attention is very refined. And now the mind is learning how to balance that refinement with interest. So the tranquility and the brightness, how do we keep them in line with each other? Now, for a lot of us, for a long time, there's just so much restlessness and agitation that we don't, we're not close to that kind of deep well of tranquility. But as that deep sense of tranquility starts to come more into the present moment, then we'll need that energy of interest, alertness, brightness, to keep it in balance. And then you can bring it into the world, into your daily life. Like, oh, I feel the deep well of well-being, of tranquility, and I feel that light of interest, of wisdom, that wants to see, wants to connect, wants to feel. And we, we practice moving with both of those qualities, and the knowing the one helps us know the other. Like knowing tranquility really helps us know what interest is. And knowing that brightness of interest, that really wholesome interest, really helps us know what that tranquility is. And that's the real engine of awakening, is having like a sense of both of those qualities and learning to keep them in mind. And if you stay for the small group, whether you're gonna you're online right now or here in the room, um, but you can do this also with just a friend at home. But if you stay for the small groups, you might just mention about both your formal sitting time, but daily life practice too. What of these spiritual skills you seem more comfortable with, that alertness or that tranquility, and what have you learned about keeping them in balance? Yeah, Krishna? He's talking about the nodding off uh, that I mentioned earlier. Go ahead. Yeah, so, but you have to go, I mean, you might just be sleepy, right? And a lot of people live their lives sleep deprived, but we already know what to do about that. So I'm talking about a uh, related, a meditative experience where we've gotten enough sleep, but we're having this phenomena show up in our sits, and it can show up very regularly, where we get into a place where the body and mind feels pretty uh, settled, and uh, the attention gets refined, like with, with whatever meditation object we're using, whether it's a more inclusive, just being aware of what's predominant or specific, exclusive meditation object, and we notice that nodding off, where the mind, the moment before, a few moments before, felt pretty balanced, like it was clear. The mind was actually seeing what was there in the present moment. But then in the next moment, there was a collapsing of the mind. And it can be expressed as the sort of nodding off, like falling forward, or just a collapse, you know, whatever it might be. And then often, depending on how the collapse happens, that is the cause for more interest coming in, and then the, and then the whole posture comes back. 
because now the mind is in balance again, and the bodily posture is reflecting that balance. And then it can lose it again, and then it gets interested in the losing it, and so now it's back in balance. But then the mind won't generalize to see what's going on. Oh, it's losing interest. Because when there's tranquility, the habit of the mind, the ego mind, is going to want to indulge in the tranquility. Oh, this is nice. I've wanted this for a while. Here it is. <laughs> but the indulging in it isn't the same as being interested in it. Interest in it means this is being known. Tranquility is being known. It's pleasant. So we actually, it's like when we're eating good food, you notice sometimes we indulge when we're eating good food. We're not even aware of it. It's almost like we're getting lost, but we're not interested in this is pleasant. The texture is pleasant, the taste is pleasant, the swallowing is pleasant, feeling it in my body is pleasant. You know, it's like, there's not that heightened attention. This happens a lot when we're in pleasant territory. There's this sort of emotional, egoic habit of indulging, almost like in the lap of my grandmother, and I don't have to sort of be interested. I can just kind of go into oblivion. And so this is an interesting thing to talk about with your small groups today if you decide to stay, or just generally. We don't really have time for questions or need to leave it. You feel free to come up afterward, though. Or uh, the other thing I just want to mention that uh, both Shelley Graff and I and uh, Ramesh Sairam and uh, Stacey McClendon have these ongoing practice check-ins where you can just, a good place to ask questions. So Wynn Fricky and I, the, Wynn is the other co-founder of Common Ground, and one of our longtime teachers here. We do it every Sunday afternoon at 4.30. It's often just a small group time, wonderful time to ask questions, online only. And then Stacy McClendon does it on Tuesday at 12 noon. I join in twice a month for that. Shelley does it on Friday morning and in person on Wednesday morning. You can see those on the calendar. And Ramesh does it on uh, twice a month on Saturday mornings. Uh, so these are times that are really built for asking questions. Good. Thanks for coming, everyone. Feel free to stay for the small groups if you like. Lisa will help you organize. Otherwise, we'll see you next week, I hope. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.